morning and welcome to Rising. You are not still dreaming, you are awake. Ryan Grimm is back in the chair with us. Welcome, Ryan. You'd never say you'd know to you, Robbie. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Ryan. All right, well, we've got an exciting show today. We're going to get into Biden's sinking approval ratings with the panel. Then we're going to discuss the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial with a special guest. But first, a few monkeypox cases have been popping up in the U.S. since last week. The rare disease was first confirmed in a Massachusetts man who had traveled to Canada last Wednesday. And a man in New York City is being tested as he had tested positive for orthopox virus, which belongs to the same family of viruses as monkeypox. And now Florida officials are investigating a presumptive monkeypox case, making it the third possible case of the virus in the states. According to ABC News, public health officials and infectious disease experts are emphasizing that the risk remains low. Here's Biden's remarks on the cases yesterday. I've had this uh, monkeypox with the larger numbers in the past, number one. Number two, we have vaccines to care for, to take care of it. Number three, uh, there is, uh, um, thus far, there doesn't seem to be a need for any kind of extra, extra effort beyond what's going on. And so I, I just don't think it rises to the level of the kind of concern that existed with COVID-19 or, and uh, the smallpox vaccine works for it. So, uh, but I think people should be careful. Biden's comments there were significantly different from just the day before when he seemed much more concerned. But it is something that everybody should be concerned about. We're working on it hard to figure out what we do and what uh, vaccine, if any, may be available for. But it is a concern in the sense that if it were to spread, it's consequential. I'm sure public health officials are licking their lips at the opportunity <laughs> to get us back in mass and back under restrictions. But... Caution, uh, caution does not seem to the freak freak out behavior doesn't seem. Uh, well, there's no sense that this is necessarily airborne, right? At this point, which is which is where the freak out really starts to come, because if it's not, I mean, it's not you know, surface or airborne airborne can both be extremely contagious. This seems to be mostly sexually transmitted. They're at this point describing it that way. Yes, affecting. Um, I think gay men or maybe in other places in Europe where they've had the outbreak, outbreaks it was concentrated among those populations. This previous outbreak in 2003 that this Business Insider piece references was due to sustained animal contact mm -hmm. with uh, prairie dogs. And then there's a, there's a photo of the family who all got monkeypox just like cuddling their prairie dog. So yeah. I mean, it's, don't it's do a, that. It's a hideous infection. It's, it's really awful. bad. Yeah, you don't awful. want to get it. And, and can be fatal as well. Not just like painful right. and these lesions last, and, but can be fatal to people as well. Right. Like Biden said, there are uh, apparently vaccine treatments. And also, you know, if we understand how it's passing, then it's, it's easier to keep it under control. There's that, there's that famous joke about the guy goes to the doctor. And he's like, it hurts when I go like this. And the doctor's like, well, then don't go like don't this. Don't do that. <laughs> yes. Not quite that simple. And you and I were talking about, uh, I, I don't know if we have one of the most hip, hypocritical uh, posts <laughs> ever. There's, there's this guy. Greg Gonsalves? I can't remember who it is, but he's, he's been out there uh, basically pushing. He's a Yale public health official. Pushing very hard. Greg Gonsalves, to, yeah. For the most restrictive approach to schooling when it comes to children and COVID. Like even today, like just. You know, really hammering the message that you cannot send these kids into these schools because it's going to create all these spreader events. He put out a message yesterday. It's like said something like, 
Well, if you tell uh, gay men not to have sex parties just because of monkeypox, then it's going to blow the credibility of public health officials. They're like, actually, I agree with you on that point. Be but safe. Also Be on safe the in how you handle it. Yeah. You can't, yeah. you can't all of a sudden say that, well, you, we can't now stop all of, the se- right. all of the sex parties just because there's monkeypox, but also say we need to shut down all the schools. It's like you yeah. start to lose credibility when You know how I feel about that. it. Neither the schools nor the sex parties should be keep shut down. All, keep them all open. That's right. right. Although maybe the sex parties when it comes to COVID probably not necessarily a good idea. Leave the mask Dif- at home. Difficult. Leave the mask. If well, if the sex party calls for mask, that's a whole different thing. Anyway, yeah, the everybody's va- vaccinated and it's outdoors. <laughs> it's fine. Out. <laughs> so the vaccines uh, for monkeypox. So this was approved back in 2019 by the FDA when the agency had approved a smallpox and a monkeypox vaccine. And at that time, the FDA's director of biology, biological evaluation and research had said, quote, although naturally occurring smallpox disease is no longer a global threat, the intentional release of this highly contagious virus could have a devastating effect. And my understanding is so they, they can give this vaccine um, to people who are maybe thought to have had contact with some with a known case of someone who had monkey pond, uh, monkeypox. And, and then also in- they can give it to you if you have monkeypox as like a therapeutic. So it obviously won't prevent you from getting it because you already have it, but uh, that it, it works uh, incredibly well uh, as as in both cases, uh, prevention and then as treatment. And it's already whipping up conspiracy theories, though, right? Like you're, you're, there's already already people are like coming after Bill Gates. Like, right. uh, clearly, Bill Gates kicked off the monkeypox thing. I understand people's sense of uh, of dread and also like throwing their hands up, like just seriously. Now we got monkeypox. It's just it's just one thing after another, and then there's, there were there are these hepatitis cases going around in yeah. young children. It just feels like we can't catch a break. Well, I, I think the the media salience now of an, of an infectious mm-hmm. disease is very high because of of because of COVID, because of how interested the news media is in it. It probably is the case that this kind of thing, this kind of outbreak, outbreak is something that occurs, you know, just every now and then, every and it, 10, it's not. Years, yeah. This is not that. Bad. Like it's not. We don't have to worry about our old and vulnerable people catching this thing in in great numbers. That's right. Sex um, parties. Because <laughs> they're probably not at sex parties if they have prairie dogs. In the vi- pets, it might be in the villages. Take though. them away. Yeah. <laughs> You're fun, having fun this morning, Ryan. He's happy to be back in the chair. That's right. um, so it's not yeah. something we need to really uh, panic about. But it is a hideous looking. I don't want. We, I don't think we showed any of the pictures of it. Don't Google it if yeah. you have a weak not- stomach. It is. Ugly uh, yeah, looking. You don't, you don't want that stuff. But as you mentioned, uh, yes, internet sleuths have begun to point the fingers at Bill Gates, and the hashtag Bill Gates Bioterrorist started to trend on Twitter. Uh, Kim Iverson started that one. <laughs> yes. Just kidding, just kidding. After a clip of Gates predicting the next pandemic would be pox made the rounds, let's watch that. Well, I'm hoping in five years I can write a book called, you know, we are ready for the next pandemic, but it'll take tens of billions in R&D uh, that the U.S. and the U.K. will be part of that. It'll take probably about a billion a year for a pandemic task force at the WHO level, which is doing the surveillance and actually doing what I call germ games, where you practice. You say, okay, what if uh, a bioterrorist brought smallpox to 10 airports? You know, how would the world respond to that? Uh, you know, that there's NAFTA really caused epidemics and bioterrorism caused epidemics that could even be way worse than what we experience today. And yet, the advances in medical science should give us tools that 
you know, we, we could do dramatically better. Right. And there was the way he says that that is, in fact, kind of creepy. And I, 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 was, I was joking before. What, what I agree with Kim on is that there, there's a certain uh, enjoyment in, in governing people and setting rules for people mm-hmm. and, and ex, in, in experimentation that comes th- through in a lot of what the public health establishment sounds like when they talk about the, these things. And, and they have, with, you know, with the gain-of-function research, with those kinds of things that we are concerned about, have shown an indifference to side effects from research. To They don't want scrutiny. They don't want transparency. They don't want to be told they can't do it. And there's, there's an experimentation mindset that comes through in remarks like that that right. I think are, can be concerning. Yeah, and so th- it's, it's this benign. was... Uh, this was from November 2021, and Gates was explaining why the World Health Organization would need an extra billion dollars a year for a global pandemic task force, which, yeah, which is what he said in that video. Yeah, I wish he would focus more on the risks of some of this. So when he alludes to surveillance, all right, surveillance, okay, yes, surveil- but surveillance can also be risky. Surveillance can mean sending people, researchers, into bat caves in places outside of Wuhan or Western China, uh, and, gra- and grabbing samples and then taking those samples back to a lab and studying those samples doesn't even necessarily mean you're adding any function to them. You're just studying them and trying to figure out because there is a rationale to it. It's like, okay, well, let's fig- we need to know what's in this cave because these bats go in and out of the cave. And there's some because there's so much crowding of human population toward these areas that there could be some interaction between this cave and the people or, or livestock and the livestock and then the people. At, so there's some obvious benefit to knowing that. At the same time, people like Gates need to recognize the risk of doing that as well, because now you're taking what could be right. a virus that was never going to leave that cave, carrying it out of the cave, bringing it back to the lab. And there are plenty of people who think that that is a perfect explanation for actually what happened with coronavirus. And the issue being that we don't even have a lot of good evidence. No one has really made the argument that even doing that kind of surveillance has a benefit. So it's not even like we have to stack that against the possible harms. Right. We don't have a benefit to even stack against the Right, because you just harms. get a list of the things that are dangerous, and you're like, okay, these things are dangerous. And the best example— And now they're dangerous because you listed them, right. because you, you took them out of the—you went into the cave to count them. And the best example being if you don't believe that, that uh, COVID came out of the lab, and instead you believe that it originated in this seafood market, the seafood market was walking distance from one of the best-funded surveillance labs in the world. So these labs are in charge of surveilling the viruses around the entire globe. They couldn't find one that, right. that originated somewhere they could walk in their lunch hour. That's their own theory. <laughs> right. Like, that's their own theory. Right. A lot of people think it actually came from their lab. But if it didn't come from their lab, it was right under their noses and they missed it. Right. This, this outbreak, sure, say it originates from, from the wet market. Yeah. Right, they're supposed to be tracking these. They, the outbreak is raging. Oh yeah, oh yeah, there it is. Oh, by the way, yeah. There. But hey, there there's, a, there's an outbreak. Good job, everybody. But Good job, everybody. An outbreak. Yeah, and then they sit on it for weeks. So right. So in order to have all of these risks to human civilization, right. you have to demonstrate some, some benefits. And so far, you're right. They haven't. Right. Well, we'll continue to monitor the monkeypox situation, and uh, I'll have my radar coming up next. Stay tuned. Robbie, what's on your radar? 
Well, ever since Elon Musk announced his plans to purchase Twitter, the Tesla CEO has become the main character of the current political moment. His increasingly rightward shift has won him tremendous loyalty from conservative media and politicians. He declared earlier this week that he would be voting Republican for the first time in his life. Uh, now, this has also earned him, of course, predictable backlash from Team Blue. The two political drive, uh, tribes need clearly defined heroes and villains, and with former President Donald Trump out of the picture, at least for now, Musk was a clear candidate to fill that role. So now we have right-wing media personality Benny Johnson, a plotting, based, and red-pilled Musk, while liberal voices in the mainstream lament his turn towards supervillain status, and Twitter's progressive content moderators actually shed tears at the idea of him taking over. So given all this, it does feel somewhat inevitable that Musk would receive new scrutiny by mainstream media figures with special attention paid to his younger years. Was he a racist in high school? The answer unequivocally, no. And of course, any embarrassing sexual scenarios? Well, they found one, allegedly. Late last week, Business Insider reported that Musk had propositioned a flight attendant for sex in 2016 and paid her $250,000 to keep the incident quiet after she threatened him with a lawsuit. Musk has denied the underlying allegation. Predictably, conservatives are rallying to his defense, largely by disputing the suspicious timing of the allegation. Various Fox News personalities are asserting, not wrongly, that liberals are desperate to dig up dirt on Musk. They certainly are. Meanwhile, left-leaning political figures and media personalities are describing the allegations as credible. Though they were never litigated in court, the victim has not come forward publicly. Business Insider's story is based on information provided by the victim's friend, which included a declaration signed by the friend in support of the victim's claims. Now, according to her, according to the friend, the victim was a flight attendant on Musk's private jet. And she, eventually, she eventually got training to become a masseuse, allegedly because she was told that this would please Musk. SpaceX does offer massage therapy as a perk to employees. In fact, Business Insider noted that in a previous article that did not frame the practice as sinister. It was described as one of the great things about working there. Now, the flight attendant, again, according to the friend, arrived at Musk's room on the jet to perform a full-body massage, and Musk was allegedly naked except for a sheet covering his lower half. According to the friend, during the massage, the declaration says Musk exposed himself and then touched the the flight attendant, and offered to buy her a horse if she would do more, referring to the performance of sex acts. The flight attendant, who does ride horses, declined and continued with the massage without engaging in any sexual conduct. The attendant is not for sale, the friend's declaration says. She is not going to perform sexual favors for money or gifts. The incident occurred during a flight to London. According to the friend, the flight attendant said she was punished for refusing the offer. Her employment opportunities were curtailed. And she eventually contacted an attorney. Quote, the attendant's complaint was resolved quickly after a session with a mediator that Musk personally attended. End quote. That's according to Business Insider. The matter never reached a court of law or an arbitration proceeding. So Musk paid the flight attendant $250,000 in exchange for her agreeing not to file a lawsuit or publicize her claims. The friend's decision to come forward was done without the victim's consent. Actually, the victim's lawyer urged her not to provide a copy of the signed declaration to the media, according to Business Insider. But she went ahead with it anyway. So we're thus, once again, in the position of trying to adjudicate a fraught sexual incident that did not rise to the level of criminal behavior and was actually settled quickly, out of court. So it'd be hard, I think, for an objective person to state with any certainty whether the incident took place as it was described by that friend. The friend wasn't there either. 
It's not particularly damning to my mind that Musk had part, was partly exposed during a full body massage being performed by someone who was in fact a massage therapist. If he propositioned her for sex, was turned down, and then punished her for it, that would indeed be bad conduct, but all we know for certain is the two parties disagreed about what happened, nevertheless came to a resolution on their own, a $250,000 payment in exchange for silence. So Business Insider is trying to get as much mileage out of this story as they possibly can. They published a follow-up, quote, Elon Musk was dating Amber Heard and finalizing a divorce around the time he said to have sexually harassed a SpaceX flight attendant. This piece didn't provide any additional evidence at all that the interaction happened the way the flight attendant's friend described it, though its clear purpose is to make readers wonder whether Musk's romance troubles would have made him more likely to take advantage of an employee. And Amber Heard obviously is currently dealing with a Me Too situation of her own. We'll be talking more about that later. But absent additional claims against Musk, this seems to me like an ambiguous episode that was handled appropriately. There aren't really any conclusions to draw from it. In a world where so many mindless partisans want to treat Musk as either a god king or as, like, Thanos, so that's probably unsatisfying. His new friends on the Republican side want to vindicate and excuse any action he took, and his, his new enemies on the Democratic side want to bury him. But we don't have a fair system for relitigating every uncomfortable interaction between two human beings after the salience of one or the other suddenly increases, and that's just as well. So the takeaway here should probably be a reminder that under the progressive norm of automatically believing victims, President Joe Biden himself must be considered a rapist who should be immediately removed from office. Remember Tara Reid? Is her allegation against Joe Biden not credible? Wasn't subjected to any legal procedure? Neither was Musk's. Now that norm of automatically believing victims is actually silly and should just be discarded, of course. And in fact, it is discarded when the accused is someone who is important to Team Blue. So for consistency's sake, we should probably conclude there's not much to make of the me-tooing of Elon Musk. So I, I read, you know, the story. It was, uh, it was really being talked about on social media a few days ago. What, what are you supposed to say about it? What are you supposed to do with a long-ago incident that was resolved? It was right. resolved. The, the, the woman is not even revisiting it. A friend who was told about it is bringing it into public attention because Elon Musk is right. now suddenly a very important political person. Right. And, and on a gut level and taking in all the evidence that's in the public, feels, feels right. It's like, it's, in, in this sense, uh, could you imagine this scenario happening the way it's described? Quite easy to imagine. It's quite, you know, saying some, him making some quip about, I'll buy you a horse if you do something more, and her being like, no. Like that, right. that feels like that could very much happen. That does not seem out of his personality character. Uh, retaliating when she says no, that doesn't seem out of character. Uh, she then talks to an attorney. If there was nothing to it, it's hard to see him agreeing to a meet in person and do a $250,000 payout. Hard to see it. I mean, anything's possible. It just it, it feels pretty credible. However, like... I do want to, uh, first of all, let me say about Elon Musk, I absolutely, from the left, I love that the right loves him so much. Because if the right continues supporting electric vehicles in order to own libs, that could be the, there couldn't be a better outcome. Because it would, be, it would have been so easy for electric vehicles to have taken on this political valence that you, you, you cannot drive an electric vehicle because... Uh, you know, that means you're a cuck who, like, loves Joe Biden or something. 
You can easily see it developing that way. But because of Musk constantly fighting with the left, now it's like it gives permission to people on the right to drive around in EVs. I positive, love it. Positive policy <laughs> development. Love but it. I, I, but I, I could see... Uh, sure, it could have happened the way you just described it. I could also easily imagine uh, an employee feeling that things are not working out at work, say, describing an interaction that was benign or maybe it was a joke or something as much worse. And I could absolutely easily see someone in Musk's position agree $250,000, probably life-changing for this person or, or significant for this right. person, chump change for Elon Musk. I could absolutely see, even just you could, you could agree to do that even if you think you think you did nothing wrong. Just because you don't want to hash that out. It's more probably. of a hassle. Yeah, to, I could that's, that's possible. One hundred percent imagine doing it. Sure, payer done. Yeah, I will. I, I, I'll acknowledge that. I'll just say that it, if I, preponderance of the evidence to me. I don't know how to it, say it one matter. way or the other. Like, I just don't point. know how. Yeah. How do we? Somebody says it happened right. this way. So, and actually, in this case, she's not even saying it happened this way. Someone who right. knows her said it happened this way. We're all you know dealing with. Against her wishes, her lawyer's wishes said, "Do not, do not revisit this. But, Doing it anyway." But can we can we dunk on Musk and agree that his tweet the other day, where he said, "In the past, I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindness party, but they have become the party of division and hate. So I can no longer support them and will vote Republican." Now, watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. As soon as anybody with any sense saw that, they're like, "Oh God, what did you do?" Like, what are you trying to get ahead of here? And I figured it was some insider trading, not insider trading, but some SEC stuff. Mm-hmm. The SEC was going to crack down on him for one more thing that he had done. Because he's, he's, he's constantly playing fast and loose with, with SEC rules. Uh, so that's what I assumed it was. Turns out, and it's like a day or two later, this story from Business Insider came out. He knew that story was coming. And so he preps the ground for everybody by saying, I'm going to vote Republican. And in the very same tweet says... And now I'm going to get retaliated against for the thing that I just said. He it's like, is come kind on, man. Getting, you think we're all stupid? Well, but he is kind of facing retaliation for yeah. his increasing association with the right and his distance that's, from the Democratic yeah, that's Party. All, that's also true. This particular thing, yeah. though, yeah. he was just playing. He's just messing with people. But yes, that he is like... The, a story about how he grew up in apartheid South Africa. Right, and that story was a swing and, swing and a miss. Right. New York Times went to talk to people he went to high school with, desperate. You could, you could sense, you could right. feel their desperation <laughs> to find, please just say he used the N-word. Please, please tell me he did. And what they found out was that despite growing up in, in this environment where, where racism was the state policy right. and racism is forced on you, he and his family really stridently rejected it, e- even beyond what might have been expected, and that he, had, that he was close with classmates who were black, that he attended the funeral of a, a, a black friend of his that, we, that was unheard of for white people to do mm-hmm. at the time. Um, it, it made me like Musk more. So there's been a, a lot of misses yeah. in, the, in the media attempt to kind of discredit him um, so far. And I, I, I kind of think this, this is another one. A business insider was just clearly so happy to have this story. And that, oh, yeah, I was going through a divorce with Amber I mean, Heard at the time. To get the document is a, you know, if you're, yes. yeah. I just I don't know what to do with again. It was not a criminal matter. They just they settled. If they agreed to a resolution, what business of it is of it is is ours at, at this point, at some point, right? It's a I don't know. Business insider. It's, it's, it's business insider's <laughs> business. So it's all of our business. Now go out and get those EVs and own the libs. Oh, all right. That, that'll you'll make Ryan happy. I guess. No, it make me angry. Just be so mad <laughs> if you get an EV. Do not do that. Ryan forbids <laughs> you to do get not. an electric car. Yeah. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Well, we'll be back with more Rising right after this. 
2018 clip of Pfizer CEO Albert Borla made the rounds on Twitter this weekend for his explanation on Pfizer's microchip technology to monitor patient compliance. Watch this. It is a basically biological chip that it is in the tablet. And once you take the tablet and dissolves into your stomach, sends a signal that you took the tablet. So imagine the applications of that, uh, compliance. Uh, the insurance companies to know that the medicines that patients should take, they do take them. Uh, it is uh, fascinating what happens in, in uh, this field. Well, it wasn't long before the mainstream media put out some kind of fact check. USA Today notes, well, that uh, was talking about, a, he was talking about a schizophrenia pill and accused vaccine skeptics of resurrecting the video, wrongly suggesting his comments were made more recently during COVID. So we want to show you the actual question Borla was asked before he gave his response because it really had nothing to do with uh, schizophrenia. Other questions? I see one right there. Hi there. Uh, Human Hack Me. I run the diabetes group for Medtronic. Um, I have a question about patient engagement, and you had touched on this before. Um, all of these advances are amazing, but even if you make the greatest drug or the greatest wearable, there's no guarantee that the patient is going to take the drug, <coughs> wear the device. So how are you thinking about technology to engage the patient? Yeah. Again, maybe I will use an example. I think uh, it's fascinating what's happening in this field right now. I mean, FDA approved the first uh, electronic pill, if I can call it like that. And so the, uh, that presumably the FDA approved the pill for a schizophrenia medication. Uh, so what they mean by compli compliance is, are you complying with the regimen? You know, right. Take, the, take three a day. You know, take, take one in the morning, take one at lunch, take, uh, take one before bed. Are you complying with that? Because if you're not, then it doesn't work like it's, like it's intended to. So that, that's what they mean by compliance. However, deeply weird. <laughs> Like, I'm like, just from a human perspective, to start right. thinking you're going to ingest a chip. I mean, the steel man case here would be that, I mean, we do have a problem. Yes. Much of the homeless problem in, in a lot of cities is schizophrenic pe people who need antipsychotic medication, who, when they're on antipsychotic medication, are not uh, public right. hazards, but will go for long stretches where they're not taking it. And it, it is currently since the 70s, since the changes to how these laws work, it's hard to force people to take, the state really can't force people to take uh, medication. But it would be better if they did take their medication. So you could see how this would have some kind of benefit there. All that said, what the public health establishment has shown us in the last two years is that they are desperate for more power over what humans are allowed to do. The, the immediate jump to requiring uh, vaccination in a wide variety of circumstances, Biden snapping his fingers and saying, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of private workers should be required to get it, even if then there are scenarios where they don't really interact with very many of the other people. Um, the, the, the push in some liberal enclaves to require kids to be vaccinated before coming back to school, uh, college campuses are like you have to be boosted 18 times before you can come back among populations that are largely safe from the worst effects of COVID unless you have some kind of immunocompromised condition. So the my, that's a long way of saying the public health establishment has shown no uh, ability to, uh, to, to pull back and to, mm -hmm. to 
go easier and, and allow more permissiveness when it's called for. They, they do seem to just gobble up more and more authority and power and more desire to control our lives. So I, I would worry that something like yeah. this, even if you can come up with a couple cases where it would actually be useful, Right. Why? What's going to? They don't have anything. They don't have a limiting principle. Right. They, like if Dr. Right. Fauci, Dr. Walensky, they don't. Do they say? Well, we could require this, but we're not going to. They don't really tend to say that. They say, yeah, it it, it might reduce harms by like a, even if it does a tiny fraction. Yeah, we we should require and it. There there are definitely people in the public health world who take into account public psychology and public attitudes around how you approach the public, trying not to push too far. Those people don't tend to be running Pfizer, right. for instance. But this is a case where you really can see an obvious benefit to something like this. In other words, it, you really would like to know if a schizophrenic patient has taken their medication. And it is, it's hard for everybody to remember to mm -hmm. take their medication, let alone people who are facing all sorts of uh, mental health challenges on the way in. So you can see the, you can see the benefit because when somebody's off their meds, yeah. That they can be a danger to themselves, they can be a danger to to others. At the same time, especially as you're watching like this dystopian right. uh, situation in Shanghai. For like right. we're we're aware of what societies can do to people in the name of public health. And so it's it's reasonable that people would see that video and be like, You're right. you want me to swallow a chip? Yeah, absolutely. And then it gets to, well, who's actually crazy? Are we using it in a broad, you know, well, just, just criminal yeah. behavior is, you, well, you've got to take your meds or you've got to be, you know, put, put right. in under surveillance or right? the kind of surveillance society. Yeah. Um, every, what if, uh, you know, what if, I'm sure a, 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 um, something insurance companies would like to do, right? They would yes. like to. Yeah. For you know, for your are you are you you know you're taking your anti-smoking pills or anti what are, what are your heart yeah, heart disease yeah. pills whatever your di that diabetes right like right everything yeah, yeah they want to know yeah for insurance purposes make sure you're you're taking and that that gets into some really tricky privacy stuff already I don't love you know all of uh, you know, how many how many questions they ask right. you for what you know what kind of coverage you're going to get how at risk you are of certain things and the uh, the reporter was referencing wearables which also ins insurance companies use what is that i don't know what so that a wearable is. would be like a fitbit oh, right? oh, oh, oh. so it's like yeah. the insurance companies be able to like monitor your heartbeat and and tell see how much you know you, you know if you're getting more exercise they 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 will have different programs in place that say like if you if you do these x healthy things to make yourself better we will reward you uh just the same way that you pay more if you're if you're smoking for your insurance and so the the wearables are a step in that direction which uh but they can't tell if you've actually ingested the pill so that's why that's why the reporter was asking about that, and, and he went with, well, just follow the pill all the, way, all the way into the belly then. And the technology clearly is going to keep getting better. Like, we're not going to stop inventing things like this. Things right. like this are going to come along. We're going to have better analytics over the human body, over everything. That is just going to happen. So we need to enshrine norms or laws or whatever it takes to make sure we still... If we value privacy, if we value individual autonomy, if we value people's rights to have privacy about their medical decisions, that not everything is, is put to what government health officials want it to be, if we agree that that should be the case, then we need to lay some ground rules because this kind of stuff is just going to get more prevalent. It's right. just going to get more part of what's out there, what's possible.
And meanwhile, as consumers, we want this technology to get better. On Friday, I left my AirPods at the pool, and there was, but the battery was still on. I went back yesterday, and it's telling me it's right there in the middle of the pool. That is useful. <laughs> Except I couldn't find it anywhere. You, mi- you missed my saga. I'm sorry to have to repeat this story for our <laughs> viewers. Uh, it, now it was, I think, three or four weekends ago, I was flying out of Dulles, and I left my backpack in airport security. I got to my gate. I, then I realized I didn't have it. I, I booked a later flight at the gate because the, the flight was leaving then. I went back to airport security to get it. TSA had already taken it away. And, uh, and I had blown it up. <laughs> it, it had my laptop, my Nintendo Switch, uh, a fancy pair of sunglasses. And then I realized, because they, they said they couldn't give it back to me. They said it's in a locked room. If they even had it. I didn't know they had it for sure. I'm like, screw it. I'm going home. I realized I had driven to the airport. My car keys were in the backpack. So I went on this trip anyway. I didn't get it till I came back. But the, the reason I brought this up is while I was on the plane, I realized I have that app on your phone that tells you where your laptop is. Mm-hmm. So I was able to verify that, yes, it was sitting in, the, in this locked room that the TSA did not have access to. I, I, I gather that the police rather than the TSA took it, and maybe they don't trust the TSA or something. It's <laughs> in a room that the TSA doesn't have access to. Did you get it back? I did get it back after I... After I came back from, uh, from this trip. And I, I, sw- I, will never, uh, I will never do that again. Actually, I will never have to describe my backpack to, to a police officer. Be like, it's just a black backpack. They're like, what's distinctive about it? Nothing. It's just a black backpack. So I, bought out, I, I went out and bought a Charmander, a Charmander keychain to put on the uh, backpack. So now it's distinctive. My dad was once playing golf with a guy who got so angry, he threw his clubs in the lake and stormed off the course. Sees him come back like 20 minutes later, fish the clubs out, get his keys out, <laughs> and throw the clubs back in, head <laughs> back out. That's Didn't great. need to find me. He knew exactly uh, where the clubs were because he had put them there. That's how it goes. <laughs> anyway, Team Rising joins us next. Stick around for that. President Biden is seeing a string of bad poll results this week. No surprises there. His approval numbers have hit yet a new low as the administration tackles inflation, the baby formula crisis, the war in Ukraine, and much more. On May 20th, the poll aggregator 538 found Biden's approval dipping to 40.7 percent, while 53 percent disapprove, though as of today, those numbers stand at 41 percent and 54 percent respectively. A new CBS poll found 69% of Americans say the economy is bad, 65% say Biden is slow to react when issues arise, and 63% describe the state of the country as uneasy and worrying. And in a new Amherst YouGov poll, 7 in 10 Republican voters said Congress should move to impeach Biden after the party sees its much-anticipated victory in November's midterm elections. Now, here with us to discuss is political reporter from The Hill, Julia Manchester, and reporter for Real Clear Politics, Philip Wegman. Welcome to you both. Good morning. So, Julia, what do you hear from Democrats? Are they, like, has panic set in? Do they have any strategy? Or are they just bracing for the inevitable at this point? Not really even trying, because that's what it seems like. Well, I think for a while they've been 
you know, nervous going into this midterm election, especially for those frontline House Democrats who are facing, you know, very uphill election climbs going into November. But, you know, in terms of the strategy, look, that's a very good question. You know, we've heard a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee Chair Sean Patrick Maloney very much urge his candidates to run like they're running for mayor, for example, make this as local as possible. And I think that's a strategy to turn this away from Biden and make it seem like a more local election, like uh, very much focusing on those issues that impact Americans every day. However, the issue is we are seeing sky high inflation in this country. We're seeing shortages of baby formula, for example, a part of a broader supply chain issue in this country. And I think when you have those kitchen table issues that are you know, being felt very negatively by a lot of Americans, they naturally look to the person at the top to blame, and that is Joe Biden. And a lot of their members of Congress in their particular districts are Democrats. So, you know, it seems like it's almost like the natural flow for these voters to vote these Democrats out because they're part of the party of the sitting president of the United States. So, you know, in the House, it's one story. In the Senate, um, it's another story. I think for a while, um, Democrats have felt slightly more optimistic about the Senate because Republicans have such had really an awful track record of recruiting uh, their wanted candidates to run for Senate. And I think there's a concern that some of these candidates running on the Senate side could potentially be weak. However, um, I think Senate Democrats are facing a lot of the same issues that House Democrats are facing. Yeah, and, and Philip, if you if you look into those poll numbers, you see things like indecisive and not taking action. It, it suggests that there is an, actually an opportunity here for Biden to actually be seen doing something. You know, Bill Clinton used to have the phrase that he'd like to get ca- he wanted to get caught trying doing something, which meant like even if it doesn't work, he wants the public to see that he's trying to do something. Instead, you have Pete Buttigieg out there saying that, well, you know, uh, baby formula shortage is just a, just a problem that the free market produces and there's nothing really the government can do about it. And, and then, you know, days later, they're they're flying formula in, which is probably a very popular thing to be doing. So, you know, uh, Nixon did his price controls. Uh, you know, Ford did his whip inflation. Now, you know, th- these things work to some extent. Put it, pushed it off to an, to another degree. But in general, the public saw them as doing something. Is there is there anything that Bi- what what is holding back Biden from just looking like he's doing something? Well, that's an excellent point. And I think that one of the more telling questions and answers that we got last week is when a reporter pressed uh, Kareem, the White House press secretary, on this question. It was, uh, well, when when was President Biden actually briefed on the baby formula uh, crisis? And she wouldn't get into private discussions, obviously. So the reporter followed up with, well, was he briefed about it before last week? And she had to say yes. Um, I think that this is a situation where if you look at the polling, um, the Biden administration, they started going downhill last summer with Afghanistan and with um, some of the uh, problems with the lingering pandemic. And it was a sort of, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire situation where, you know, Afghanistan and COVID aren't necessarily moving the needle now. Uh, now, instead, it's uh, things like, you know, Julia just pointed out, it's the inflation, it's the cost of gasoline 
saying it's this baby formula shortage, something that I don't think any of us would have ever expected. And some of these things, you know, maybe you can blame Biden for others, um, maybe not. Uh, but the thing is, whether or not he's responsible, it's entirely predictable that the American public is going to say you're in charge, you know, do something. And that's why I think that the sort of um, slow burn uh, from the White House on the baby formula crisis here, where, you know, at first they were defending why they weren't using the Defense Production Act, and now they're all hands on deck trying to fly in formula from Europe and elsewhere. It does show some indecisiveness. Um, it does show that lack of a steady hand. And remember, that was the central tenet of the Biden campaign. He was the guy who could be the elder statesman, who could be normal, who could bring us all back. We were stopped and having these, you know, red versus blue bickering arguments, and he was just going to calm things down. Well, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, and so on his uh, debut tour of Asia, President Biden unveiled his economic plan aimed at countering China's influence in the region, citing 13 nations who agree on his proposal. Biden also rebuked China's engagement with Taiwan, saying the U.S. is prepared to respond militarily. And here's Biden's message to North Korea's dictator, Kim Jong-un. According to Politico, this moment was almost lost to history as the U.S. government cut off the president's feed before he could answer the follow-up question from CNN's Caitlin Collins, but reporters were able to hear the barely audible response. I don't think I was able yeah, I'm to glad hear they could. the response. <laughs> it's a very pretty uh, waterfall backdrop. I, I don't, maybe, uh, uh, Julia, do you have more, <laughs> more information about what quite happened there? I, I'm not sure what it was. I don't, and to be honest, I couldn't really hear that response as well. But I think, you know, when we're pivoting to foreign policy, especially as it relates to Asia, this is something that's obviously very important to the president or should be important to the president. And I think it's one of the uh, few foreign policy issues that could permeate the election as um, an issue that impacts Americans, especially when it comes to China. You know, I cover House and Senate races, and I am hearing, especially in the Midwest, a lot of these Democrats running with these pro-manufacturing messages, wanting to get jobs back to the United States, um, you know, in this sector, whether it's agriculture, agriculture, excuse me, or manufacturing, you're hearing them talk quite a bit about China. So it's very important that the person at the top of the party, in this case, President Biden, is strong on this issue of China as it relates not only to the economy, but also to, um, you know, other uh, areas such as, um, you know, growing Chinese influence in the region. So you know, I, I don't think that comes across as strongest response from the administration. And I'm curious to see how that impacts Democrats down the ballot. Yeah, and, and Julia, real quick, wanted to get your reaction to the, the redistricting shuffle that happened in, in New York over the weekend. You know, I reported over at The Intercept that, when, that everybody thought that Mondaire Jones was leaving New York 17 because Maloney was bullying him out of there and he didn't want to primary, uh, enter a primary challenge with Maloney. That's part of it, but it turned out that uh, jo Jones had his own polling in the district of New York 17, which Biden won by 10 points that had him you know, losing a close election in the general. And so and clearly Maloney in a plus eight in the neighboring one didn't feel confident there and wanted to move over to the plus 10. So if you have popular Democrats who are running from plus eight and plus 10 districts, you know, what does that say about what their prospects for the fall? 
Yeah, I mean, it shows that they're in a very weak position. And I think also a lot of the infighting between the Democrats, you know, between Democrats on this issue that we saw in the House last week sort of shows how weak of a position they are in. So it doesn't, um, especially in a state like New York, which in those districts should be good, particularly in the downstate area, should be good for Democrats. The fact that um, a lot of them, like Mondaire Jones, are facing these headwinds, um, you know, with the, in the first term of the Biden administration isn't isn't a good sign. Yeah. Uh, Philip, are you, are you following, uh, you know, what's going on in, in Pennsylvania at all? My sense is that you know, uh, uh, that uh, Fetterman is going to be a very strong candidate for the Democrats, you know, given his messaging on a lot of the things we're talking about. And, you know, the Republicans are still, we don't know what the outcome of the race is even yet. And, and bo you know, both those candidates being, I would say, weak for different reasons. Uh, is there, a, you know, as strong an opportunity as the Republicans have coming up in November. Is there is there any you know concern among people you're hearing from you know, the, the current uh, uh, the people already in office that it, the opportunity could be partly squandered because of you know the personalities that thrive in the you know post Trump in still Trump world Republican Party. Yeah, so I think that the general conventional wisdom here is that when it comes to Fetterman, he's an unconventional character, and that is something that a lot of voters, uh, they identify with because he's not walking out there in sort of the trademark blue suit that every politician wears, and he's not sort of rolling up his sleeves performatively at the state fair. Uh, he's got the best uh, situation that he could hope for right now. Um, obviously, he's, he had a bit of a health scare with that heart attack, and one would think that might you know push him back on his heels a little bit um, but you know when he looks across uh, the way to the competition you've got uh, two two candidates who, who are fighting each other right so instead of rallying around the flag uh, Republicans are still bickering right and I think that this is just one more chapter in the larger question of who actually is the kingmaker in the Republican Party is it uh, you know Donald Trump or is it somebody else and we're going to see. I mean, you know, uh, if Oz gets the nomination here and, and he uh, goes against Fetterman, you know, one would think that this would be a year that would uh, likely favor Republicans. Um, but, you know, if Oz loses again, or excuse me, if Oz loses, right, and Republicans don't gain control of the Senate, a lot of those Republicans who are saying nice things about the former president in uh, private, they're going to come out and in public start saying something that Chris Christie has been saying since Trump left office, which is that, you know, Trump lost them the Senate and, you know, potentially he could lose them the Senate again. Well, Phil, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Prosecutors presented their case against Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman. It's a trial that is part of special counsel John Durham's years-long investigation into the Trump-Russia probe opened last week. Prosecutors accused Sussman of scheming to, quote, inject the FBI into a presidential election by peddling an ultimately unsubstantiated tip about Donald Trump's ties to Russia eight weeks before the election. Prosecutor Bertain Shaw said the lie was part of a bigger plan to create an October surprise right before the election, as well as to use and manipulate the FBI. 
According to CNN's reporting, Hillary Clinton personally approved her campaign's plans in fall of 2016 to share information with a reporter about an uncorroborated alleged server back channel between Trump and a top Russian bank, her former campaign manager, Robbie Mook, said in federal court on Friday. So a, a lot of this, so, I mean, there, there's two, two layers of this. There's, there's one, the, the, dirty, the dirty tricks element of it, and then there's two is the legal element, we, right. and they're kind of separate. But we, which one you want to take first? You want to do the legal one first? Yeah, or? let's do the legal one right, first. So the legal one first. Michael Sussman is an attorney who uh, went to the FBI, uh, and he is charged with lying to the FBI about whether or not he was meeting with them on behalf of a political candidate. And he claims to this day that he was not, that he was, that A, he never said he wasn't, but B, that he thought that there was a crime being committed, uh, that he thought there was legitimate evidence for it, and he wanted the FBI to look into it. Like, that's his, that's his claim. So in order for the FBI to be able to nail him for, him, him, for them to be able to find him guilty, they'd have to prove that he didn't believe that, that he didn't think that this was really a crime, and that the Clinton campaign asked him to go do this uh, for them. That, and that will, I think, be an uphill climb, but I think so much of this depends on the jury in our tribalized world. Look, anyone who is stupid enough to talk to the FBI should probably go to prison. Like, don't <laughs> to, to talk voluntarily to the talk like, to the, Right, he, when they come like, to you and they ask you questions, you say, thank you, I have to speak with my attorney. You don't answer questions because they'll always get you on something. This is how they got, they got Michael Flynn. They, got, they always get you. No, they, and then if they can't get you, they'll say you're obstructing justice. So you right. talk to your lawyer. Don't answer questions from them. So but, but to willingly to wade into their waters and yeah. start volunteering information, of course, it's going to blow up in your face. Right. Of course. Now, did he actually, like, right, like you said, did he actually commit a crime? I don't know. This was, but this was very foolish. This was very stupid. Right. Right. And so don't start talking to the FBI. They're not your right. friends. They're not your friends. Well, they thought. Well, they thought they were, and some of them were. Like, you know, there were elements of the FBI that were their friends or elements that are, that are against them. And it's becoming an increasingly political you know, organization as, as politics is like seeping into absolutely every aspect of our society and our institutions as well, which, which then bleeds into the dirty tricks question. So the, the scheme appears to have been that in order to get the media to cover this uh, without enough evidence to demonstrate that it's true, you need to back it into an investigation. Because the media, uh, and, and I've been guilty of this myself, that if, if federal investigators are looking into something, like that is newsworthy. Right. Because whether it's true or not, it could lead to charges, it, could, it can upend elections, that is news. And so if, if you're trying to back into it that way by saying, okay, hey, Go, go poke around on this. And the FBI tells you, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll read this memo that you sent us. Then you go to a reporter and say, hey, FBI is looking into the Trump campaign for these ties without, without mentioning the fact that you wrote a memo and handed it to the FBI and all the FBI did was read your memo. Right, and they, it's not that they, they didn't go to the media and say, oh, hey, look, this is being investigated. It, 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 did, it did end up right. getting investigated, but they went to the media and said, oh, you should, this, right. they you should did, check they, this out. Right, they just went straight up. Uh, and and, said, and hey. in fact, Ro Robbie Mook, um, the other Robbie, uh, <laughs> said, said, 
no, we don't, we don't go to the FBI with this. We go to the media with this. And then after there's some kind of story about it, maybe the FBI looks into it, right. uh, which is correct. But it, but it, it reveals, and, and you know, the fact that Hillary Clinton personally signed off on this and then tweeted. About, so they, they had this story placed with Slate. They gave mm-hmm. Slate this tip. Slate wrote about these supposedly cyber connections between Trump and this Russian-based hotel. And then the story comes out, and then Hillary Clinton tweets it saying, oh, look oh, at this. Oh, look at this. The, it, it shows the, the short-sightedness of the campaign, the, the entire philosophy of the Clinton campaign, that this was what was going to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president. This was, right. what, this was her pitch to voters, not an affirmative pitch about what she was going to do or what her record was or who she was or what her policies were, but trying to paint yeah. Trump as a Russian stooge. That was the strategy. That strategy failed catastrophically. Absolutely incredible and revealing failure to understand what voters actually care about. And revealing in the sense that it is deeply what Hillary Clinton cares about. And what what MSNBC TV hosts... who are, right. being, who's, are being watched by everyone in the campaign, right? They have their attention just focused on MSNBC or CNN, not paying attention to what anybody else, what any actual voters think or care about, just the most resistance liberals. They want to be fed line after line about Russia. And without ever asking the question, how does this affect people? Mm-hmm. Like, who, like let, let's say it was true that Putin was doing all X, Y, and Z. Like, they ne- the, the, this, the MSNBC host never asked... Well, why would this resonate with a mass number of, of voters? In 2012, Barack Obama was mocking Mitt Romney for saying that Russia is our biggest geopolitical adversary. He's like, this is, you know, this is not 20th century, like we're battleships, horses. What are you, you, know, what are you talking about? Make, like really like ripping the guy to shreds. And, every, and the MSNBC crowd lavishing praise on him for, for that. So they know that Uh, He ripped the idea. Obama had just recently ripped the idea that Russia is a geopolitical adversary. They also know that nobody cares about foreign policy. And I can tell, and both of us have written about foreign policy, can tell you, we don't write about it for the traffic. Like, people just don't care. Right. That's that's part of being in the empire, is that you don't care what's going on in the periphery. And so you know those two things, then all of a sudden, people are going to like vote based on a server in Trump Tower connecting with with Moscow, like, oh, I was, I was frustrated with the Clintons over NAFTA, uh, but now that you tell me that there's this server connecting with Moscow, hmm, okay, let's give, let's give the Clintons a third term. It just doesn't, con- just doesn't make any sense, doesn't resonate with people, doesn't, doesn't connect, even, even if it were true, and we now know that they really didn't have any evidence that it was necessarily even true, this particular Alpha Bank thing. Yeah, the, pe- the people in Pennsylvania, Michigan, o- Ohio, you know, saying uh, our, our wages are not as high as they need to be in order to feed our families. And I'm worried about our jobs going o- overseas. And, and what are the plans for, you know, the, this pain that we're dealing with? Russia, Russia, right. Russia. And they're just yelling Russia at, at them. Right. And, and they don't care. Yeah. And, and Hillary has been obsessed with Putin for years. And Putin has been obsessed with Hillary for years. Like this is a mutual obsession. So... Both of them, I think, are, are stuck in this kind of myopic thing where they, they feel like other people care as much as they do about each other. And it's just, we turned out that they don't. So Clinton campaign lawyer Mark Elias testified saying that he kept Joe Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, in the loop on the Trump Alpha Bank uh, story through an email he sent out to people on the campaign. According to Elias' testimony, email recipients included Jake Sullivan, Robbie Mook, 
John Podesta and uh, Jen Paul Mary. So the whole campaign being kept in the loop on this plan to like plant this Alpha Bank story. Yeah, and it, it is. It, this is standard dirty tactic type yeah. things. I mean, you know, to to be a little fair to the Clinton campaign, something like this comes across any halfway competent campaign. Right. They, yeah, they might call up a friendly yeah. reporter and say, hey, look into this. Like, that, this is, it is not shocking that this occurred. This sort of thing always occurs. I, I'm sure people in, in the Trump campaign were you know, trying to get reporters to, all the time to write about things. Right. And they were writing about the dirt on the Clintons, bad stuff about the Clintons. So it's, not, it, it's bad because it shows how the priorities were right. misplaced. They weren't trying to plant stories. Uh, that they were rather trying to plant stories about the Russia connection rather than stories about, you know, how he's actually like a plutocrat who doesn't right. care about the working class. I actually did a real Alpha Bank story uh, years ago. Alpha Bank is, in fact, a basically Kremlin-connected uh, financial institution in Russia. And I reported, I forget when this was, a couple years before this, that the BGR Group, which is this like uh, dark arts kind of Republican lobbying firm that works with dictators and other shady characters around the world, Haley Barber, founded by Haley Barber and a, and a couple of other leading Republicans, they were representing uh, Alpha Bank, which was financing Iran's nuclear program at the exact same oh, time great. that the Republicans were just going to war uh, against Obama over this uh, over the Iran, the nu Iran nuclear deal. So that that, that's a, that was a, a fun Washington, like how Washington works and how, how this money flows around. So Alpha Bank has been known to Washington operators, like the, the Clinton world for a for a very long time. Uh, but anyway, it, it's not the kind of thing that's moving boats. And, no, no, it's all dirty, all dirty. We'll have more rising right after this. Let's do a New York congressional race update. So Robbie, you weren't here on Friday, uh, but we had Rokana on to talk about uh, all of the different shuffling going on in, in New York. And it's it was quite a drama last week in the Democratic caucus. So Sean Patrick Maloney is the DCCC chair. He represents this Hudson Valley area, which is New York 18. That was a plus eight Biden district. As soon as the new maps uh, came out, his house got moved over the border into New York 17, and it justified him saying, you know what? I'm going to New York 17. It's only two points better, but I'm out of here. I'm going over here. So he goes to New York 17. There's already somebody there. Representative Mondaire Jones. So Jones sits on the decision for a week, but all of the indications were he was leaning toward New York 16. But there's also somebody in 16. That's Jamal Bowman. Uh, Jamal Bowman, the squad member, of course, who beat Elliot Engel. The guy in New York 15 cries foul. That's Richie Torres because he starts to see Jamal Bowman might move into 15. He's like, wait a minute. And so he proposes an idea. He's like, I have a better idea. Sean Patrick Maloney, you run in your district. Mondaire Jones, you run in your district. Jamal Bowman, you run in your district. How's that sound? Sounds reasonable. And so Jones looks at this. He run, Jones ran a poll against uh, Bowman versus Jones poll. Uh, we don't know exactly how the poll came out, uh, but I talked to a bunch of people who spoke to Jones, and his mind changed, it seemed, to them after the poll results came in on Bowman Jones. Bowman much more popular than people had thought. And so starting on Friday morning, Jones started telling people he was looking at New York 10, which is this brand new district that is lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn. Jones does not live there, has never lived there. And clearly you don't have to live in You don't. District. In New York, you don't have to live in, in the district that you represent. 
And so uh, Carolyn Maloney and uh, Gerald Nadler, both represent Manhattan, got put into the same district and instead of splitting the two up, uh, decided they're going to run against each other. So that, that makes this an open district. Old Bill de Blasio lives in the, actually within the borders of New York 10. So he said he's running there. Uh, Yulin New, Assemblywoman, uh, has announced that she's also going to run for this district. The everything is systemic racism. Everything is, everything is violence. Everything is violence. This was the tweet that uh, she was getting dragged around for. Uh, and then Mondaire Jones on, you know, over the weekend said, I'm running in New York 10. And, he, and the way he framed it was, it is the home of Stonewall. Uh, he's the first openly gay black member of Congress. And he said uh, that Manhattan and this, and this district has been a, a refuge for uh, queer folks for generations. And you know, he's going re- to re- run to represent this. So now it's, it's going to be Jones, de Blasio, uh, New, and anybody else who happens to jump in between now and then, because it's only three months. A lot of, when you have these three-month sprints, a lot of people who otherwise would not want to run for Congress because it's a two-year absolute it's grueling nightmare. Like, you know what? I can do three months. Yeah. And, and win or lose, like three months of my life, probably lose. But what else am I doing for the next three months? But Jones, he's got to find a place. And presumably he's got a, play, a apartment here in D.C. He's got a place in wherever, in upstate New York. Now he's got to find a place to live in his district. And when he, when he jumps on Craigslist or <laughs> wherever people go for lower Manhattan and Brooklyn places, I think he's going to be a little shocked. At, maybe, he'll, maybe he'll Airbnb it for the campaign. Wow. Oh, well, we're lucky to have you here today, Ryan, because right. I don't think there's any other person in all of America who could keep straight that, uh, that labyrinth <laughs> of crisscrossing, district swapping. It's kind of funny. But here's the big problem for Democrats if, if they step back from a national stage, what I was told is that Jones polled New York 17. So that's the, his current district, which he won by 24 points uh, last time, although it's, it's now been changed and it's more conservative. Like I said, it's a Biden plus 10 district. He polled it, and the polling had him trailing in a general election. Trailing the Republican? Trailing the Republican. So people thought that he was nervous about a primary against John Patrick Maloney. But yes, a little bit. But the bigger problem is, okay, you go against John Patrick Maloney, you have a bruising three-month primary. Now the DCCC chair is not a friend of yours because you just beat him. Uh, And now you have to pivot to the general election, and your polling is already, without the bruising primary, showing you slightly behind. So if Democrats—I just checked Cook. That's not even on the likely Dem. It's like beyond a likely Dem, this New York 17. So if they're they're struggling— in these districts that Biden won by eight and 10 points, because obviously Maloney doesn't want to run in a plus eight, prefers a plus 10. He's the DCCC chair. Because that is that mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a lot more seats at, at play than people are currently thinking, if, if, if it's right. And uh, maybe there's something unique about uh, that area. That sounds hard to, Jones. hard to believe that it's a unique. Right, exactly. No, it's the, right. It's the national climate. <laughs> right. It's the horrific... Yeah. Economy, it's the formula shortage, it's the gas prices. Um, yeah. And it's Democrats being selfish, too, because Maloney has the best chance to win in his plus eight because he's well-liked there. Now that seat's probably going Republican. Maloney, you know, uh, carpetbagging into Jones's district, he might even lose that one. Jones might have had a better chance of, of winning that one. And so going down into New York 10, all these Democrats fighting for these safe seats are They're just— They're going to pull everybody right. down. <laughs> 
Right, and, and they're, just, they're just fighting for seats in the minority yeah. at that point. Clearly. Like, like I mean, like for what? Like to be a member of Congress in the minority? I guess, I guess Biden's, so Biden's popularity right now, he's 40% approval. What was he, I, I guess, in the, gener- in the general last time? He was above 50? So that's probably, the, probably 47. Something yeah. like something around that. So that's the difference. Yeah. That's, the, that's, your, that's right. your D plus 8 evaporated. Yep, yeah, there it goes. Oof. So uh, um, something's got to change between now and Election Day, or they're looking at much bigger losses. Now, these will just be, you know, th- their thinking is but this is always their thinking, and who knows if it's going to be true, that they can turn it around in 24. That, okay, let's say we lose New York 17, New York 18, seats like that in 2022. We can come back and win them in 24. Maybe there's some thinking that you might as well, it's going to be a bloodbath. So just lose. (laughs) Lose as badly as you can. Give give Republicans so much rope to hang themselves. You get a better draft pick the next year. (laughs) Trust the process. Maybe if you you give the Republicans enough of a mandate, they'll embarrass themselves by doing kooky Trump things. Well, they're certainly going to impeach him in February of (laughs) 2023. We'll have, like, yeah, yeah, national. What do they impeach over, you think? Hunter? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. What else would they impeach over? Oh, they could find a million things. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> yes. I, I, there will absolutely be more. Yeah, there will be Hunter Biden investigations until the end of time. But I, Which is not to say there's nothing legitimate to investigate there. It's just, <laughs> we it's, have a lot of unanswered yeah. questions about, yeah. um, and, and, and about how the media covered for it for so long. But, um, but it's, it's going to be D plus, D plus 8 at play. If the, if the D plus 8 and D plus 10 are in play... That's trouble. And then you think about uh, somebody in New Hampshire, like um, Shaheen or Hassan. I forget who's up in New Hampshire. One of those, one of those senators, Democratic senators. That's elite. That's like a zero a toss up in New Hampshire. Uh, if a D plus ten is in trouble, it's really hard to see how Democrats hold a seat like New Hampshire. Yeah, there. And then I, stuff like Colorado comes into play. Right at the Senate level, I, their their best case, their best argument is that they're up against some not great Republican yeah. candidates in a variety of places, but, right. which, is, which is something that's ten, tended to happen right. at, at promising moments for Republicans yes. in the Senate specifically over the last yep. 10 plus years. But Well, we will keep following that and we will have more rising in just a minute. In a new Sunday op-ed for the New York Times, Senator Mitt Romney calls on the U.S. to get serious about nuclear war with Russia not by reducing tensions in the region or halting the flow of NATO weapons to Ukraine, but by engaging Russia militarily. Among options Senator Romney considers after a hypothetical nuclear strike are retaliation with more nuclear bombs, uh, quote, obliterating Russian forces in Ukraine with direct NATO intervention, and emulating George W. Bush's 9-11 response by uh, forcing adversaries like China to pick sides. And Robbie, one thing that's funny about this to me is the U.S. Uh, the U.S. warning that somebody else might use a nuclear weapon is, forgets the reality that we're the only ones that have ever used a nuclear weapon. That's right. That's true. That's that control <laughs> truth. We have done that. Um, it, it's also a little we're concerned that they're going to use nuclear weapons. But given what we what Senator Romney says in this op-ed. Shouldn't Russia be concerned that we're going to use nuclear? <laughs> like we're consumed there, and so we're just openly discussing exactly how we might use them defensively. But they're saying yeah, the and same reta- thing, right? And it is 
I mean, look, we, look. Should, we should threaten to yes. retaliate with nuclear weapons if they're going to use nuclear weapons like that. This is the deterrent. If you use nuclear weapons, we will bomb you with nuclear weapons. That is that is what prevents anyone from using nuclear weapons. It should hold. We have seen what happens when only one country has nuclear weapons. We use them. Like, <laughs> right. We use months. them with impunity. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think he's also right that it is good to be talking about this. Like, I think it's, we've been a bit blasé about the risk of nuclear war. Uh, be, that it should be the first question that is asked about, I think, every decision that's made with regard to this conflict. Does this increase the likelihood of global annihilation? Like that, and that doesn't seem to me to be a controversial statement because, you know, the, the end of the world is, to me, more important than anything else. Like that seems just kind of basic common well, sense. It's, it's only been the case for the last... In all of human history, it has only been the case for the last 70 years that nation states at war with one, could be at war with one another or indirectly at war with one another and not be committing their entire, right. all of their weapons to the fight because that carries some risk of nuclear annihilation. That's only a scenario right. that's existed for 70 years when, you know, with France and England or Russia and Germany, Austria, you know, the great power struggles, Napoleonic struggles, you know, in, in Europe mm -hmm. in the, the 1700s, 1800s. And so on, and it, World War One. Like these were, they were committed to winning these conflicts. Right. They they weren't saying oh, like, oh, we're not going to use the. They didn't have a device. It was like, well, we can't use that. We're now in. We're in that we can't use that in in phase of warfare, right? Uh, which it has to stay that way because right. there will be so much death. Right. So and, much death. Right. And the advances that we had in World War One, the chemical weapons, we yeah, everybody. Right. And then they decided not to use using them. them. Like, well, that was awful. Yeah. Uh, World War II, the, the absolute firebombing of civilian centers, mm -hmm. civilian populations, whether it was you know, Tokyo, Germany, London, you know, just absolute you know, carnage. Right. Death uh, from the skies. Yeah, and so we, we've, we've, the propensity is there, but now, right, the technology has, has caught up. So at least, at least it's being thought of. You know, there have been a number of um, analyses that have come out of, of Russia saying that, that Putin is not... There, that that there are plenty of ways for Putin to get out of this, that it's not as, that the chance that he's going to use nuclear weapons is extremely low, uh, that, that he does not, no matter what happens in Ukraine, he doesn't feel cornered in the sense that he's gonna, he, he's gonna have to like end the world. Uh, and I hope that those are true. Uh, extremely low risk is still risk. Right. And it, you know, it's, it's good to keep it in mind, at the same time without like, making it more likely to happen by saber rattling. Right. The, the shorter this conflict is, good the less likely end, there's going to be. Good reason to end the conflict. So good as soon as in addition to, it's horrible for dying. Ukraine and yeah. people are dying, and it and it's horrible for the global economy. It's causing uh, people are starving to death. People are yeah. starving to death. Yeah. It's uh, gas price. I mean, it, it, people in America even are you know dealing with not starving to death, but higher prices, a lot of uh, increased economic insecurity, and it, it is being felt all over the globe. And it's a really bad thing we would like to bring to a swift end. So, but if our, if our thinking is that, well, we want the, the Putin regime to suffer or perhaps collapse, so let's draw this out until that happens, which is something that could happen, yeah, could happen tomorrow, very unlikely. Right. Could happen 10 years from now, maybe more likely then. But we, we're going to deal with 10 years of misery and Ukrainian lives and suffering here and everywhere else. Right, and also people think of that outcome as an obviously good thing. But the same, same types of people would have said the same thing about Germany after World War I. 
yeah, let's let's drive these people. They they started this war. Uh, this is their fault. They need to they need to pay back. They need to pay and they need to suffer. We're going to drive them into the ground for a couple of decades. Uh, and, and when their and, their regime collapses and is replaced by an even a, a right. worse regime, one of the worst regimes that has ever existed in all of human civilization. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And if and there were very few people at the time, John Maynard Keynes famously uh, being the exception there with his economic consequences of the peace, saying, hey, actually, I'm not so sure that this is a good move that we're doing here. Everybody else was like, just, you know, he, humiliate it was, Germany. It was yeah. a pile on. It was mobbed. You know, it was very, the same the same mentality of like, what do you support Germany, you know, being responsible for World War One? Like, are, are, were you a friend of the Kaiser? Like, what's wrong with you? Like you can't, no, nobody is allowed to make arguments without you know, instantly getting thrown over to the other side. So anyway. anyway. Well, meanwhile, in a video address given at Davos today, President Zelensky said the West should have supported Ukraine more in 2014 after Russia annexed Crimea. Quote, we are grateful for the support, but if that had happened back then immediately, that unity, that pressure on governments and on companies, would Russia have started this full-scale war? Would it have brought all these losses upon Ukraine and upon the world? I'm sure the answer is also no. I'm not so sure the answer is no. It could have just brought the war then <laughs> more. It might have. I wonder. Yeah. Now, it's it's interesting. The, the it's interestingly like the mil the Russian military may have even in, been in better shape then. In 2012, uh, Putin uh, fired this reformer and uh, who was trying to kind of modernize and get a lot of the corruption out of the. Uh, Russian military, military industrial complex, and replace them with a military industrial complex stooge, uh, whose you know whose corruption and alliances with these major companies is a significant reason that the war is going so badly for Russia. Like all of these different like one example, like they're they're like le they're they're like flagship tank uh, because of corruption and because there's no checks on what's going on. They they put like the ammunition like right underneath. Uh, the soldiers inside the tank with that with no armor between the ammunition and the soldiers, so you hit it with one of those javelins and it just it's finished. Like that, th those types of mistakes don't happen in a in an efficiently run mil uh, you know military industrial complex. In a corrupt one, those are the tanks you wind up getting. So uh, maybe they had a better military in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there's no war. Maybe the, a lot of sanctions, but I do not see them. Um, I. I I don't see them. I don't see the Maidan happening with Yanukovych getting uh, getting thrown out, and then a pro-European uh, government put in, and then a massive number of sanctions over the Crimea annexation. I I don't necessarily see how that doesn't lead to more confrontation too. Like, yeah, I, it, like if he's trying. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It would and it would have been back at a time. Twenty fourteen is. This is pre-Trump and the kind of switch. It would have been interesting politically, the, the sort of switch on Russia posturing between the Democrats, right. the, the, the overnight switch when Rachel Maddow declares that you know, Russia is, is evil and, and Republicans are evil, Republicans are Russia and Hillary, you know, all of that happening uh, subsequent to that. So it would have been, it, it would just right. been a nonsense. Right, because you still had John McCain and right. Lindsey Graham and those others at the, right. at the time would have been definitely calling braying. Right, De War. Democrats would have fought it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know. But here I, we are. Here we are, and it is interesting. You know, all the uh, 
this has created more the, the countries that want to join NATO. Uh, Putin's actions have indirectly kind of triggered some kind of European solidarity, but but China's not China's not taking our side <laughs> in this conflict. The uh, the what, what the Saudis aren't doing anything useful for us. Um, it's just it, it's created more. The West is. I think more united, but it's not. The whole world has not united against Russia. The West is right. united. Um, so, right. uh, meanwhile, President Biden confirmed today that the U.S. would invade militarily should China invade Taiwan. Well, not Acor- invade, but right. Would engage militarily. Yeah. According to AP, the president continued on to say that deterring China from attacking Taiwan was why Russian President Vladimir Putin must pay a dear price for Ukraine. Which I, right? I get that. We want. China to perceive that an engagement in Taiwan would be costly and would be not worth it. We do want them to have that sense, but I mean, what would we actually do in the event of that happening is is not clear. Did you see this uh, this Chuck Todd thing where he did like a war game of what would happen if uh, China he did it on his show. Taiwan? He he did part of it on his show, and then I guess the rest on wherever else his. His show lives or something. CNN Plus. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and it was it was it's it was scary. He's got you know, one team representing uh, China, another team representing uh, the U.S. And and you've got the Chinese in in these in this war game. You've got the Chinese bombing Guam, uh, bombing our, a base in Tokyo. Then you've got us like attacking their ships and their subs, and mm-hmm. uh, and you can see it spiraling out of control, ex- extremely quickly. Mm. Um, and you know who, who knows if China's looking at this. I, I guess we'll find out and seeing like, well, you know what, this doesn't seem to have been worth it for Putin, or saying, you know what, hey, let's do it quickly now, get it over with. Yeah, hopefully the former. Hopefully yeah. the former. Because you, you do want countries to be deterred from invading other countries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the point of including the United States. <laughs> right, us yes. too. Right, right. We say we we are hypocrites because we are and and. Actually, what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan emboldens uh, more malicious countries or equally malicious, if you want to use a <laughs> lefty framing, uh, to do this kind of thing with impunity because we did it as well. It doesn't matter if our intentions were The George good. W. Bush quote is like all anybody will ever need Oh, from we did history. talk about that last yeah. week. The, what was that? That a single... A single brutal dictator can, yeah, can launch in a brutal invasion of another country. Yeah, like Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. I, I mean... Ukraine. Ukraine. And but Iraq too. Oh. Yeah. All right. Tomorrow on Rising, we're going to get more into the weeds of everything you need to know about monkeypox with Dr. Amesh Ajala. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Brianna will be back tomorrow, right? I believe so. No. I, we never know. I never know the schedule. I didn't know it was going to be you until you, you walked well, through walk the door through this the morning. Door. A pleasant surprise at that. Happy to be here. All right, we'll see you tomorrow.